So here we are, uh, two weeks, two weeks of riots and protests and demonstrations later. Um, things, as many of you probably know, in Ferguson have quieted down. Uh, the protests that took place all over the place, uh, Washington, D.C., Times Square, Boston, Oakland, everywhere in between, uh, has since, for the most part, stopped. Um, the protesters have gone home, and the camera crews have moved on to the next story. And a community and a nation has to decide, uh, what now? Uh, what do we do now? Uh, do we move on to the next thing and start talking about the next issue, uh, the next conversation? Do we turn our attention just to Husker football now, as glorious and wonderful as that is? And I'm excited. Uh, but do we, do we do that? Do we, do we move on? What do we do now? And... And my hope and my prayer um, for us as a community of faith is that we would not just uh, move on. And of course, there are many other conversations to have. Uh, Racial inequality is not what we're going to talk about every week. In fact, two weeks from now, we will be starting a new teaching series when we get back together. Uh, But my hope and my prayer is that we would not move on and simply brush it aside and hope it it goes away until Ferguson happens again, because it will. Um, the details will be different, but once again, something's going to happen that's going to bring this issue of racial inequality front and center. And then again, you know, we're going to have to figure out what we're going to do. Uh, so I hope and I pray that we don't just that we don't just move on. You know, even though some of us it seems we really hope and pray that this I, this thing will just go away on its own, right? Just let it be, and time will take care of it. Right? And for some of us, I think we, we're still really convinced and believe that this really just is not an issue anymore. But I would disagree. This week I was talking with uh, one of the gals who's, who's a part of our community. And um, she had gone to the doctor, had an appointment, and she walked in and was greeted. She's a, a white gal from our community, greeted by white staff, had a very great experience at this office. Very professional, very kind great bedside manner. It was all good. And as she was getting ready to leave, this same nurse went and helped another gal who did not look like her, who was from a different country, who did not speak fluent English, and her tone immediately changed. And she got very, very frustrated with this gal who had just had a child, who was struggling in the bathroom and clearly in a lot of pain, And she walked out, and she's just frustrated. She goes, why can't you get this? When just two minutes later, she treated our our gal from our community who looks like her and speaks like her and acts like her completely differently. Like, how how do you explain that and tell me that prejudice doesn't exist? I was at the DMV a couple days later. And every time I'm at the DMV, it questions my belief system altogether. Um, I, I question my theological position on the existence of purgatory and all kinds of things. And uh, if you work at the DMV, God bless you. May he use you as a light in a very dark place. Um, but I was there for like an hour and a half, and I was standing in line next to this gal. Um, very, very dark skin um, from a different country. Uh, smelled very differently than me. And we stood together in line for, you know, 45 minutes, and then we had to go and sit down for, like, another 45 minutes. And, and I'm watching other people who look like me interact and treat this woman who does not look like me. 
or smell like me. And they didn't have to say a word. But the way that they treated this woman was disgusting. And I'm sitting here thinking, how, how often does this happen all around us and all around me? And I just don't even have eyes to see it because I'm not looking for it. And I wonder how, if, how true that is of, of a lot of us because for those of us who are in the ethnic majority, it doesn't, it's not something that we have to deal with every day. Um, it's not something that maybe we're looking for, or maybe truth be known. It's not something that uh, we really have to deal with a whole lot. And one of the things as we have this conversation that we need to level with is all of those things, whatever your story, whatever your skin color, whatever your background or socioeconomic context that you're in or coming from, all of those things shape the way that we look at and understand every issue, including racial inequality. All right, so I want to throw up a cartoon that I, th- I threw up online this week that I think illustrates it pretty well. Right, three different fish, you see the world in three very different ways. Right, the little fish, there is no justice in this world. The middle fish, no, there's, there's some justice. And of course, the big fish, you know, the world is just. It's fair. It's working just fine. It's all a matter of perception, isn't it? And so as we begin and and as we address this very uncomfortable, awkward, tension-filled conversation, we just need to acknowledge on the front end that we all have a different pair of eyes that have been shaped by our own experiences and our own stories that shape how we look at issues like these, including racial inequality. So for example, what happened in Ferguson over the last two weeks um, to a white family living primarily in a white neighborhood, in a white community, right, it may not seem like a very big deal at all. Right? And we may look at stuff like this and the news coverage and the fact that we're talking about it at church, at Mosaic, and, and think like, you know, what is, what's the big deal, really? Right? Because this issue of racial inequality, it's not something we've ever maybe had to deal with, some of us. Right? But we've got to recognize to others from other contexts who maybe look different or are coming from different places and have a different story than you and I, maybe, maybe it is your story, this is to them the issue as they understand it. The issue that leads to so many other issues. Right? But we're coming from this, to the same issue from two very different places. And this is actually um, illustrated pretty strikingly uh, in a survey that was done over the last two weeks by the, the um, Pew Research Center. Um, how do you like to work for the Pew Research Center? No thanks, that does not sound exciting. But anyway, they did a survey, and this is so interesting. Like, just, just hear this. All right, so they, they polled a number of, of black and white Americans. 80% of African Americans say that the shooting in Ferguson raises important issues about race. 80%. But only 18% of white Americans say the same thing. Completely different lenses looking at the same issue. Right? 18% of African Americans say that, you know what, this whole race issue is getting too much attention on the other side of things. Not relatively low, but almost half of white Americans are saying that. Saying, you know what, this is really overblown. It's getting too much attention. Race isn't an issue. Right? And so that is a huge gap that illustrates this reality really well, I think. Um, For some of us, who have been a part of the ethnic majority for most of our lives, or for all of our lives, perhaps, 
Uh, it's probably one or the other. Um, probably all of our lives, uh, in case you somehow changed in the middle. Um, anyway, you know, we might, be, we might be quick to jump and say, you know what, this is, this is overkill, and the system works. And it's fair, because it's always worked for us. Right, but if we were to stop and listen to some of us within our own community, they would tell you a very different story. Because they've, been, they've experienced the same system through a different pair of eyes, and it hasn't always worked uh, for them. Right, another way that this plays itself out in our assumptions and our biases is when we assume, as I would assume a number of us do, I've heard it come out, that in the end, Officer Wilson, who pulled the trigger six times, that he is going to get justice. Whatever that means, that justice is going to prevail, that it's going to be fair and it's going to be right. Because in our own story, that's how we've seen it play out. The justice system has always been right for us because, unlike some of us, right, we've never experienced it actually going wrong for us or for ours. Right, another one. Feeling uncomfortable yet? Are we feeling the tension? All right. Let's lean in a little bit more. Right, those of us uh, in a community like Lincoln who are part of the ethnic majority, we might, we might really have a hard time understanding why anybody would ever question the intentions of a public servant. Right? But if we would stop and listen, we would hear a very different tale from a number of our own in our own community and elsewhere who have experienced racial profiling gone wrong, who have experienced them or their loved ones being mistreated. And for them and their understanding, like that was, that was connected to how they look. Right? And so we're looking at these through two different, very, very different eyes. Right? This, this one will probably make a number of us angry because this phrase, if I've learned anything, enrages white people. But I'm gonna, we're going to go there. All right? So you can email me, by the way. If you get mad, email me. Uh, if you leave an anonymous note, it's going in the garbage. I'm not even going to read it. So here we go. All right, it's not uncommon for those of us who are white to really have a hard time with the suggestion that white privilege exists. Right? Don't we hate that phrase, white privilege? Oh, some of you are feeling it. You're mad at me right now. Where is he going with this? Right? But um, I I think part of the reason is because, first of all, those of us who are white, like we never asked for privilege. We've never felt privileged. We've never seen it. We've worked very hard to get to where we are and to get what we have. Right? And, and so it's hard for us. We don't like that suggestion at all. But the truth is, if there is, if there is white privilege, we've also never lived in a day without it. And so it's very hard to see. And the thing about white privilege, if it exists, I would suggest to you that it does, um, is that it's different from racism. Like your, your eyes can be in the right place and your heart can be in the right place and you can affirm the image of God in every human being and seek to actively love them and still, though, fail to see that some things are harder for those of us within our community who are not white than for those of us who are. Right? So there are some things that are easy for us that we don't even have to think about that are fraught with complications um, for our black brothers and sisters or, or those who are from other countries. Such as, a few examples, obtaining fair housing, experiencing limited interactions with police who perhaps are always seem respectful to us, having e- easy access to fair wage jobs, right, and enjoying a much lower propensity be, to be caught and charged for minor, minor civil infractions. 
right? If this is a reality, we just have to acknowledge this is a reality that many of us know very little about. Right? And so it's so important that we stop and, and, and we, we listen. Right? Another way that this plays itself out, and one of the comments that I've heard a number of times this week, is, you know what, Aaron? You need to be quiet until you know the facts. Right? Until we know the facts of what took place in Ferguson, right, we, you and everybody else just needs to be silent. But we don't realize is the ability to be so removed from the situation that we can actually be silent and remove ourselves from it, be completely detached, is in and of itself a privilege. And a privilege that not everybody has. You know, when I read stories about, when I hear about Ferguson, and some of the other stories, you know, that I shared from up here last week, I'm surprised, and I shared that last week. You know, I find myself oftentimes like, I can't believe this still happens. I can't believe that this still exists. It's hard for me to comprehend. And what I'm realizing is even the ability to be surprised in and of itself is a privilege. Right? Because there are some who this is, even within our own community, that have grown up in contexts where when stuff like this happens, right, they're not surprised. Because they've experienced it so many times. Right? And so we just have to just get honest and say, you know what, my own perspective... No matter my skin color, socioeconomic class, where I grew up, what part of the country, where I live now, is subjective, it's limited, it's just my own. Right, and so I wanted you to just, we're going to get even a little bit more uncomfortable. So I want to show you some pictures, and, and I just want you to ask yourself, from your perspective, what you feel, where your mind and what your, where your heart goes when you see these pictures. Right, so the first one is one that, that was circulated a lot during all this. Right, and so some young black men, that's a Molotov cocktail, they're getting ready to throw at police. All right, so what do you feel and where does your mind go when you see this? Right, does it, does it affirm some of your assumptions? Right, for some of us, we have family. I have family who are in law enforcement. That affects our perspective. Right, because we know how incredibly hard it really is and the judgment calls that are involved. For some of us, because of our own stories, and we, we, we are embarrassed maybe by this. We wish that they wouldn't react this way, but it's understood. The anger, the frustration, we understand. Right? For you, does it, does it relieve like, an obligation to feel like, morally heavy? Right? Or, or to feel that maybe, just maybe, something's wrong in this country? Or when you see this, right, does it kind of, do you morally let yourself off the hook and say, well, see... Right, they need to get their act together, as if like this somehow undoes any moral obligation we have to address the condition of our own heart. Just asking questions. Right, you can go to the next one. Another, it, uh, a lot of footage around this that was shown as well. Uh, a lot of looting that was going on. From a lot of people, actually, a, number of, a lot of them, most of the arrests were not from people who lived in Ferguson, a lot of opportunists. But, but what do you feel when you see this? Right, for some of us, it's, it's anger. Right? We can't really level with this. Right, for my own part, like my parents pushed all of their chips in to start a small business. They're small business owners. And so for those of us, if that's part of our story, this affects the way that we understand and see these kinds of things and interpret what's going on. Right, but for others, even though they might completely disagree with this and condemn this, for others of us in this own room, like we understand the frustration and the anger and the tension that has been building for so long to lead to things like this. All right, and so all that to say, all, I, all I'm saying 
is that we need to just understand that my perspective and your perspective, they're limited, they're biased, they're subjective. And so we need to get really, really good at, at listening to one another, right? Less talking, more listening for all of us, regardless of our background or our color or where we live in this country or in this city, right? And I would suggest to you, you know, if Ferguson reveals anything to us and the response to Ferguson throughout the country, right, it's that this is an issue that still hits very, very, very close to home for a lot of people. And so for my own part, I just don't think that we can brush it aside and say that it's not an issue for my own part. Right? And so we're leaning in and, and we're talking about it. So all that to say, so what, what are we to do with this? Right? What does life look like for us on the other side of Ferguson and, and with whatever's coming? And so last week, if you weren't here, I encourage you to give it a listen. But last week, I just made a case for this being a justice issue and therefore a kingdom of God issue. And that this is a body of Christ issue, a church issue. And so we can't ignore it for a lot of different reasons. But this morning, I just kind of want to build on that and look at a particular time in the life of Jesus. Because I think it has some things to, to say to us. And it's a time in which a lawyer comes to Jesus and he wants to call him out. He wants to show Jesus to be blasphemous. And he kind of wants to get off the hook in one of the things that Jesus has been going around saying. And so this is what it says. This is Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. He came to Jesus and he said this. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? This is, by the way, kingdom of God language. What must I have to inherit your kingdom, to live into that? What does that look like? What do I need to do? Verse 26, he says, What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? And he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is something we find Jesus saying elsewhere. So we don't know if he's quoting Jesus and he's kind of putting those words back on him um, or not, uh, but this is something that Jesus has been known for saying. In verse 28, Jesus affirms him. He says, You know what? You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Right? But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor exactly? Right? This is a very important question because Jesus just got done affirming something very, very important. Right? He says, for us to live into the kingdom and to be right with God, it's twofold. Right? It's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Right? And so he wants to know, because he's a good lawyer, he wants to know then, who is my neighbor then? Right? He wants to know, like, where am I let off the hook? Who, who do I have permission not to love? Right? And this is, this is very, very important because as a lawyer and any of us, like, we can make a pretty good case, I would say, for loving God. Right? Loving a God that we can't see, that we can't touch, that we can't audibly hear. Right? You can make a case for loving God without doing a whole lot. But when it comes to loving neighbors, that is, that's not abstract. That's actually uncomfortably concrete. Right? Loving your neighbor can actually be measured. Right? Loving your neighbor includes a cost and includes calluses. And so he wants to know, all right then, if that's the way it is, who is, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus does what Jesus does best, and he tells a story. And if you never uh, have been in church before, or you've been away for a very long time, Chances are this is a story that you're at least somewhat familiar with. 
Because this story is so timeless, and I would suggest so timely, that it has made its way 2,000 years later across the world and into our English language. <clears throat> it's a story where two races that historically had been at odds with one another, they clash in a very unexpected way. There had been tension, there had been bloodshed, uh, there had been a, a lot of hate and brutality between these two nations of people uh, for a very, very long time. Um, the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans had gone on for hundreds of years. Um, and even today, we see this continuing to play out um, in the conflict between uh, Israel and Palestine that is constantly in the news. You know, it's a conflict deeply embedded in, in race and nationality. Um, and you can actually throw up the photo. It's interesting. I think maybe they understand you know, this conflict in, in Ferguson perhaps a lot more than, than some of us do. And so Jesus launches in to address these people that have been fighting over land and identity for a very long time. And this is what uh, N.T. Wright says. He says, you know, even today, a uh, few Israelis will travel from Galilee to Jerusalem by direct route because they'll take them to the West Bank um, and risk violence. And in exactly the same way most first century pilgrims making the same journey would prefer, just as Jesus did, to avoid it and to go around. It was much safer, uh, but not completely safe. The desert road from Jericho to Jerusalem had many twists and turns, and thieves could lurk out, out of sight, uh, in nearby hills and valleys ready to strike. And a lonely traveler was a very easy target. And in our story that Jesus shares, that's exactly what happened. The man is ambushed. He's stripped of his clothes and his possessions. He's beaten within an inch of his life, and he's left to die. And this is picking up the, ver the story in verse 31. Jesus says this. He says, A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. To which the crowd, by this point, would have been enraged at where Jesus was going with this story. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So Jesus turns to this lawyer, and he says, Which of these robbers do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. To which I like to picture Jesus like dropping the microphone and walking away, maintaining eye contact. <laughs> like he's just dropped a bomb in this guy's world. Right? Brian informed me uh, in between gatherings, like the conflict between Jews and Samaritans at, in the, at this time was such that they wouldn't even say out loud the word Samaritan. Right? And so this is a bitter pill for this guy to swallow. He won't even say the word, the, the word Samaritan or, and identify him that way. He just simply says, the one who had mercy on him. You know? And I'm thinking he's just like biting his tongue. And Jesus says, that's how you are to live. That's what it looks like. That's what it means to live into the kingdom and follow me. Right? And I think for those of us who know this story well and, and reading it removed, it's very easy to be very negative on that priest and that Levite. But you do have to understand that, you know, if that priest touches that man and he actually is dead, and it tells us he's not sure, he looks as if though he, he might be dead, um, he's going to be ceremonially unclean for the next week. All right, so he can't work 
Appointments are going to have to be canceled. Right? So by engaging, he's going to need to take a week off. All right? So for you, you see somebody on the side of the road. They maybe don't look like you. They maybe have a cardboard sign and you're not sure if they're okay. They're laying there. Maybe they're inebriated. Maybe there's mental health stuff going on. You're not really sure. Right? But engaging that person, you're going to have to take a week off of work and cancel all your appointments. I mean, come on. Like, are you engaging? Like, are we stepping into that moment? Right? And realizing that if you do that, it tells us that he actually puts the man onto his own donkey. Like, the walk is 20 miles. All right, so how are your walking shoes today? You're going to take a week off of work and walk 20 miles, and then to get to Jericho and realize there's no free health care in Jericho. All right, so to put him up in an inn, you're, this guy is naked. He's been beaten and stripped of all his possessions. He's going to need to be taken care of. He's, need to, he's going to need to be clothed. He's going to need to be fed. And he's hurting. He's bleeding. He's going to need to be bandaged up. So you're going to pay for that. Right? And it tells us that he pays two denarii, which is two days' worth of wages. So median income in Lincoln, that would be what? 300 bucks? 300 bucks? All right, so this, there's a cost associated to this. So, I mean, just ask yourself, for your own part, I know... Right, you're going to engage. You have to take a week off of work, walk 20 miles, take care of this guy the whole way, pay a few hundred bucks, and then you're going to come back and pay the rest of the tab if there is one. Right, and I just wonder whether we're really all that different. Jesus drops a bomb in this guy's world. Right, and one of the things that Jesus does is he actually exposes that you've actually asked the wrong question. Jesus doesn't actually address his question directly. Because this guy wants to know, who do I have to love? Right? Who do I have to love? And who don't I have to love? Right? And there's implications in Jesus' answer. Right? In fact, he, he points to his enemy. He points to the person who doesn't look like him. He points to the person that he has refused to love up until now. And he's the hero of the story. I love that. That must have just made him so angry. Right? But Jesus never actually never actually answers this question. He actually reveals that you've asked the wrong question. The question is not, who is your neighbor? The question is actually, how can you now be a neighbor? And that is the question that Jesus answers. And how can you now be a neighbor? Right? You get off your donkey and you love somebody. Right? In the King James, it's more explicit. Right? You get off your other word for donkey and you help somebody. I thought about naming my message that, but I thought it might get me into trouble. But... Right? But how do I love my neighbor? How do I, how do, I do this? Well, in the story Jesus, Jesus shares, uh, you look for where the bleeding is. That's what we do. Right? I look to where others are hurting. I look to where healing is needed. Right? I see the image of God in each and every person, regardless of race, regardless of history, regardless of tension. And, and I look around to see who has been mistreated, who has been overlooked, who has been abused, who has been beaten down, who has the church or our culture maybe not me, but maybe just others, have generally walked by. Whose suffering has been ignored? And then once we see it, what do we do? We get off our donkey. We allow our lives to be interrupted. We get our hands dirty. We allow others to bleed all over us and make us messy as we pick them up. We seek to bandage the wounds. We throw ritual purity and religious pageantry to the wind wherever it stands in the way of us getting our hands dirty and loving somebody. We put them on our horse, let them ride while we walk 20 miles. We make sure they're cared for, pay out of our own pocket so that they might be made well, and then we come back and pay for whatever is left. Right? And so we can argue on the details of how that translates to here and now, but I'm just telling you, this is, I'm just telling you back what Jesus has just said. 
Right? I think if there's anything, while we might push and pull and disagree on the details of how that translates into our culture, I would suggest that the one thing that we cannot do is do nothing. To turn a blind eye, right? to walk by on the other side of the road, right? we're called to engage. To love selfishly, tangibly, and sacrificially, including those, and perhaps at times, especially those with whom racial tension has existed. That's just my suggestion. From my understanding, that's just what the story says. And to be completely honest with you, right, as I am learning, and as God is breaking me, and I'm asking hard questions, in some ways for the very first time in my life, and I look at the church, and specifically the white church in America, and we're not all there, but, you know, there's a lot of us in here that would fall into that category. I'm wondering if at very crucial times in the history of our country, and including at times here and now, whether the white church has looked a lot more like the priest than the Good Samaritan. Right, who passes by on the other side of the road with, its, with his religious schedule to keep and his religious business to attend to without engaging. You know, as people are saying, I'm bleeding over here, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, I'm hurting. And we say, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. It doesn't make sense to me. And I wonder if we're willing to listen now. And I can't really answer that. You know, one of the coolest stories about my family, uh, history is of my great-grandfather, Noel. And my great-grandpa was a, a county sheriff uh, in Kentucky. Uh, back in the 40s and 50s, and uh, at a time when, at that particular time in our country's history, uh, in most parts of the, world, of the country, especially in the South, uh, there were no schools for black kids, which, by the way, is a very effective way to oppress people, to refuse them education. And it's one of the ugly parts of our country's history. I think probably a lot of us are very embarrassed by that. But that was the case at that particular time. And my great-grandfather, Noel, got to a point where he just did not think that that was right. And he, against, in the midst of a lot of opposition, uh, built the first black school in Kentucky. Uh, and he lost his job for it. And he would continue to serve that school for the rest of his life. And, in fact, in his office when he died, he had a plaque uh, thanking him for 60 years of service, of serving this community and school. And when he died, uh, one of the coolest stories uh, from his life, when he died, uh, the funeral was going on, and there was some ruckus outside, some movement and noise, and they, somebody walked out. And outside of this funeral home were hundreds of black families who had come to pay their respects. And the funeral director stepped in, white guy, white establishment, and he said, you're not welcome here. You need to disperse and go home. And my family said, you need to sit down and shut up uh, because we're paying the bills today. Uh, and for the next hour and a half, took an hour and a half for them all to walk through and to pay their respects to my great-grandfather, uh, which is one of the coolest stories uh, I've ever heard and, and a part of my legacy of my family that I'm very proud of. 
But one of the things that I'm realizing right now in this season is that I'm 32 years old. I'm 32 years old, and for the first time in my life, I am asking whether this issue of racial inequality is still an issue. For the first time in my life at 32 years old, I'm speaking up for it and about it, and for the first time in my life, I'm wanting to do something about it. So I can't speak for anybody else, but I know for my own part, like I'm, I'm realizing like I've got some repenting to do, I think. Because for my own part, like I, Martin Luther King, let's just go to, he, he's a good guy to go to. He has some words that just kind of floor me. And he said this many years ago. He said, we'll have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good. And this may not be you, and I can't speak for you, and maybe you have nothing to be sorry about or repenting to do, but I'm feeling that I sure do, personally. Because for my own part, I don't want the next 32 years of my life and my story to be like the last 32 years for myself. I want God to change what what has been going on in here. I want him to expand my vision for what I see and my courage to engage what is hard issues, to play even just the smallest part in seeing things change. And, And this is, by the way, is a timely conversation, not just for us as individuals because we're a part of the larger story of our country and what's going on, but even for us specifically as a church. Because you have to know, right, we have been praying about something since before we began as a church. And that is multiplying what God is doing here and planting an additional campus. And we shared with our volunteer staff here a week or two ago that our directional team feels that it is time. Right? And we're still working out the details with our location. But you've got to know, it's not going to be in the suburbs. And planting a church in the suburbs is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But for our part, where we feel God specifically calling us to plant, right, is downtown and north, right, right on the footstep of what is 70% of Lincoln's refugee population. Right, and so for us, as what has been up until now, right, a, a rather white church, uh, I think God is going to mess us up in a really great way and make us profoundly uncomfortable, not just this morning or last week, uh, but in the days to come. So if there is stuff that's going on in here that needs to be addressed, right, we need to address it. Right? If you want to be a part of the change, right, then go be present with us in a place that's very different than some of our primarily white neighborhoods, where everybody speaks English, right, where we genuinely share the same values. Right? I dare you. Right? Go down and, and initiate peer-to-peer relationships, not as the great white savior, you know, like that whole complex needs to go away, but as peers. Going as much to listen than to talk. To learn just as much as to teach. Right? If you don't think that this has any bearing on your life, or you have no issues and no assumptions and no biases and racism and prejudice is no longer a thing, then I dare you to come down there and serve with us for six months. And then let's have a conversation in six months and see if you still feel the same way. So for us as a church, that's where we're going. That's where we're going. And I'm really excited about it, even if I'm the only one. 
And of course, I know that I'm not the only one. Right? And let me tell you, when injustice has a face, uh, when prejudice has a name, when it's not just like an idea that we talk about on Sunday morning in a space like this, right? but they're my friends that I know and I care about, it will begin to wreck your heart in the best of ways. Everything will begin to change. And these will not just be distant ideas that we talk about in theory. You and I, we will hurt for our friends. Right? We will grieve for our brothers and sisters that we know. And then, and I think only then, will we begin to actually feel the pull to participate in God's ongoing kingdom work and to begin to work for the change that we see is needed. So, I'm going to shut up because I know I've been talking for a very long time. But just, and band, you can come on up. Just, and I will say this. This is, this is not the end of a conversation. This is just the beginning. Right? And I know that there's a lot of push and pull and tension, and, and that's okay. Right? And so if I could encourage us in a couple different ways, one would be embrace the process right? and realize that this is a process. For some of us, this is the first time that we're really asking these questions and having these conversations because we've grown up in a primarily white community as part of the ethnic majority, many of us. Right? And so embrace the process. And please, as you do, that means not demonizing people who disagree with you. Right? Not demonizing me. Not demonizing people in your life group. Not demonizing people that you interact with on social media who see things differently than you. But actually celebrating the fact that we're having a conversation about this and not turning a blind eye. Because the truth is, that in of itself is a really big thing. Right, that is a step in the right direction. That is, that is progress. All right? So just recognize that, that this, is, this is a process. Don't be, don't be cynical. Please don't be cynical. Right, secondly, right, we, as we do, we need to be relentless in extending grace to one another. Right, like, as I said at the beginning, I think this is really pushing us, many of us, some of us, in our understanding and our practicing of extending grace to one another and our understanding of grace. And we have to ask whether on this issue or any issue, whether grace is, is big enough and great enough, the grace that God has given us and the grace that we're called to extend to one another, for us to be in the same room, to be in the same community, to be in the same life groups and disagree with one another, for there to be push and to pull. You know, the biblical language for spiritual maturity and growth talks about iron sharpening iron. Right? Iron sharpening iron. You know what it takes for iron to sharpen iron? Some of you have heard this, right? Friction. Right? Friction is not always a bad thing, especially when it happens in the context of grace. Right? And so we need to be relentless in extending grace uh, to one another as we do because as a church family, uh, we're in this together. Uh, we're moving forward. We're moving into new places. And regardless of whether you're, where you're at right now this morning, uh, you're invited to be a part of that. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, I thank you that we are, I, do, I thank you that I'm a part of a community that is courageous enough to have these conversations. Lord, I thank you for the way that uh, you've been messing me up helping to broaden my own perspective. Um, I have so much more to learn. And I think we all do, regardless of where we are this morning or where we're coming from. So much to learn from one another. And so, Lord God, I ask that you would give us 
hearts that are soft to what you want to continue to do in us. Hearts that are teachable. Ears that are attuned and ready to listen. Lord God, I ask that you would give us eyes as we move forward to see wherever inequality exists. And that we would not turn a blind eye, that we would not cross over on the other side of the road, but that we would face those things head on. Lord God, may we be a people that enters into those spaces so that where those things exist, they aren't just ideas. They are faces that we see. They are names that we know. They are people that we love. So Lord, we come before you now as a community of faith. I pray these things in your name. You can go ahead and stand as we close.